And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined, as I often am, by my good friend and producer Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how's it going? I'm doing good, John. Excited for you to tease today's guest. Yes, because today's guest is talking about a topic that most people might not find that interesting. But I think after the hour that we spent talking to Thomas Gronemark, they will be really, really excited to start watching Throw-Ins, which is our topic today. Mike, you've just listened to that conversation. What did you make of it? I mean, going into the conversation, I, I wasn't sure what to expect. And coming out of it, I feel like I know so much more about throw-ins and I guess the strategy behind it, because it, Thomas was even talking about how you know, there are certain things, whether you're doing a soft touch on a throw in or, you know, certain movements, it's all, it's all very detailed. And I thought that was fantastic. And and I think for the Tifa football podcast audience, this is right in their wheelhouse. Yeah. And Thomas obviously became well known because he started working with Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool and was able to turn around their production from throw-ins really quite impressively. So lots of exciting stories in there as well about his time at Liverpool. So I, we can only recommend this conversation. It's a really fun conversation. I think the best thing for us to do is just jump straight in. Thomas, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, you are absolutely welcome. Yeah, good stuff. Well, let's start at the very beginning, just to give a little bit of context to our listeners who may not know uh, about you. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up becoming a, a throwing coach, how you developed that that um, focus on throwings in particular. Yeah, you'll get the really short version here because it's, it's a quite long story. I also do talks about that, but 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 we, we go back to the to the early 80s where I was a small kid playing uh, a football. And I really looked up to my big cousins, Ben and Johnny. They could do really long throw-ins. So, uh, yeah, I, I was just fascinated by that. So as a teenager, I, I tried to be better at throw-ins and it became my speciality. Uh, and I reached the highest U19 level in Denmark. And, um, yeah, quite good. also played against, for example, Thomas Graverson, who later played for Celtic and and uh, has fouled Real Madrid, the Danish national team. But I wasn't good enough to be a professional football player. I was also really fast too. So in the mid-90s, I went to athletics and came on the national team already the first year and had six years there on the national team every year, several times uh, Danish champion too. So, um, so I took a lot of knowledge there from athletics, from the movements, because I also observed the throwers. And so, so, so I learned a lot there. And then in 2002, I changed sport to the Danish national bobsleigh team. And of course, that's a crazy sport where you drive 130 to 150 kilometers per hour. And I learned a lot there too. You know, we did a lot of uh, data. We did a lot of analysis. We did a lot of video analysis too. And we had a cooperation with the German Bobsleigh Federation. So it was really, really structured. Also compared to other countries and other sports too. So I learned a lot about analyzing there. Uh, structuring things and and it meant that in the middle of that bobsleigh period in 2004 I, I played an indoor uh, football match against a German uh, uh, bobsleigh team we had a, we trained with them every day so 
I did a long throw in. All the others were impressed, and, and yeah. Then, then I said, "Wow, I could just make the long throw in when I played myself." So, so then I thought, "Hey, if I can make a, a good throw in, can't I cheat players to do it?" So I went down to my local library in, there in January 2004 and and tried to find a book about throw ins, but there was no books at all. So I used approximately half a year to to uh, do a throwing course and and yeah then i started in my first professional club um vipo from denmark and they improved their long throw-ins a lot scored a lot of goals there so it was a big success from the start so 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 that was my entrance in the professional uh, football world so i've been been coaching the long fast and clever throw-ins in approximately uh, 20 years yeah, interesting hearing you say that the first thing you were really interested in was the throwing the ball a long distance. But early on, you you tried to find books about throw-ins and there was nothing out there. And so you made your own course. So I'm interested to hear, like looking back on that now, 20 years later, um, what were the things that you had in that course that, that what you were focusing on then? And, and is your view about throw-ins now very different to what it was that you were doing back then? Yeah, yeah. first of all, my view on the long throw-ins is... It's different. It's more complex because, of course, I learned a lot in twenty years. Uh, but also my my approach to throw-ins in general, adding on the fast and clever throw-ins, that has changed a lot. And and I'm sure we are coming to that later. Um, but what I actually just did, I was just going down to the local football pitch. I had a video camera. Of course, I could throw far, but then I tried to observe what what happens with that f- distance between the feet when I do this with the hip when I take this run in and of course some things were really working fantastically and some things i tried they were really really terrible but but so it's a little bit like trial and error you know so 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 i had this course in the end on the long throw and so so to be honest i didn't know if it would work because i only tried myself but but Already in the first team, the players like improved five to ten meters. Uh, later, up have many players improved up to fifteen meters now. So, so that recipe uh, worked really well. So, so yes, again, the first couple of years it was slowly only the long throw-ins, nothing else. Hmm. And you ended your story with uh, Danish clubs, but the the famous club that came in for you that put your name on the map, as we say in England, is is Liverpool. So. Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, working with Liverpool because I think you, I've heard you talk in a few interviews that you've given about the the data showing that Liverpool really improved when you you came in to the club from seventeen eighteen to eighteen nineteen I think was was the two seasons the season before you were there and then the season after and there was a real change in in the data so talk us about working with Liverpool and how you were able to make those changes and what what improved there. Yeah, first of all, again, I'm working with both the long, the fast and clever throw-ins and my throwing coaching is really tailor-made to, to the kind of playing style of formations. Also, uh, the individual uh, throw-in superpowers, like I call it, so the individual player strengths and weakness around throw-ins, uh, also on the pitch, of course, uh, receiving the ball, creating space, things like that. So, so of course, Jung Klopp called me because Liverpool were terrible on throw-ins and, and, and actually, like data later showed, they were only number 18 in the Premier League, third last. So, of course, when I came to the club, but Jung Klopp invited me, I looked at videos, I could see their strengths and weaknesses and, and, and again, there were many more weaknesses than strength there, but because if, if they, it wasn't like that, they wouldn't be third last there. So, so I started learning from all the basic things around space creation, what not to do, what to do, also how to, for example, read the opponent's defending pattern, because 
because a lot of teams they're only using one or two solutions in each zone. And of course, you can do that. It, it also work. It can also work, but it's much more dangerous if you can create many, many different solutions or options around the pitch. So also learned the team um, team space creation too, where where they're also scanning and seeing what what kind of spaces is really high quality, and if that space is closed, how can you open up another space? Or yeah, so so we just took it step by step, and and of course I also in Liverpool had a throwing analysis too. I'm like. I'm coming from the pitch and that's actually the work I love the most because I love to play myself. I love to do throwing coaching too, but I've learned many years to do throwing analysis too. Been, yeah, just with Liverpool, I analyzed 300 games in those, um, in those five years. So, so around thousand hours of, of throwing analysis just with Liverpool. Um, so of course, when you know what to look after, if you have the experience, the knowledge, then you also know what is most important to improve. Because when I see a throw-in analysis, I can easily find maybe 10, 15 things we could improve. But if you try to improve everything, then it it's not going well. So normally in each visit, also with Liverpool, I focus on one, two, three things all in all. Of course, not in the first visit in a the, in the club, then it's more. But if I'm working with a club over years, like I've done with many clubs, you know, focus on one, two, three things we can improve. Try to put that into the amount of minutes and intensity I get with the players. So that's the way it worked with with um, with Liverpool. And then again with the numbers, I was actually I was actually really happy be- because of that data. There, it came out in 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 I think it was September October 2019. So in my second season in Liverpool, and there was two reasons why it was really good. Um, the first reason was, uh, yeah, naturally because the data showed that Liverpool improved from 45.4% to 68.4% possession on throw-ins under pressure, went from number 18 to number one. So that was like, uh, it, it had proved my my work in Liverpool too, because a lot of people were still skeptic, even though, even though you know, the team had, had big success. The, the other great thing about that was it, it was not my data, and that was really important of, of of two reasons. First of all, I think that if, if it's a third person who says it, it's more trustworthy, not because you can't trust me, but it's more like if other people say it's really great. And the other challenge was that in, yeah, actually in all my clubs, the, the, I can't share the, the data because of contracts. And so so I, I knew myself with the, that we were <laughs> normally 20, 30, 40, sometimes 50 or even more percent better on throwing possession than the opponent. So we were also really good at defending throw-ins. But I couldn't tell that to anyone because that was like, you know, <laughs> that. so so I've forbidden to share that because of my contract. So, so those numbers uh, really, really helped me a lot. Be- and the great thing here is that as a long throwing coach, it's quite easy to, to measure, does the players improve? It's also quite easy to see does the team score directly or almost directly from a long throw-in? Then it counts. But but what is fast and clever throw-ins? How do you measure space? How do you measure pressure? How do you measure position? Uh, things like that. It was really, really hard, you know, because 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or 20 years ago when we started, we couldn't really measure it. You only had an opinion. But now we have the, the technical tools now to measure things like that. And it's been a, a great, great advantage for me. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting hearing the great improvement that you're able to uh, produce in Liverpool. Would you say that that is a general rule for you that you could go into most clubs and and improve the the, the possibility of producing from throw-ins? Um, or or do you, would you say that there's more of an option for that for a team like Liverpool where they're really right at the, the, the top, the really elite teams? No, no, not at all. I, I can improve all teams, you know, no matter what playing style, no matter what formation and so because i have ha- i have so much experience of tailor making my my th- uh, throwing coaching to the specific teams that that it works so so i don't do the same throwing coaching in liverpool like i did in ajax like in toulouse like in fc Midland, like in so some teams are focusing a lot about on the the fast and clever throw-ins. Other teams are focusing a lot about on the long throw-ins. For example, the last four seasons I was in FC Midtjylland, they scored 35 goals on long throw-ins, uh, so so almost nine per season. I have a local team here in Colling where I'm living. When I came here, we, we moved here two years ago and they were at the very bottom of the third league, but I came in, we stayed in the third league. Last season, we uh, we promoted to the, to the second league. Uh, right now we are number six in the second league in Denmark and, and it's been going from a small team to a much, much better. Last year, so in, link, in the calendar year, 2023, we scored 12 goals on long throw-ins. So, so, so I, can, I can help teams have success no matter what playing style they have. Um, and of course, if you hire me, there's, there's no guarantee that a team will get success. But I can just say that I've been a part of 14 titles around the world, not only Liverpool, but also um, Flamingo, Philadelphia Union, uh, uh, Toulouse, Ajax, FC Midland. But also I've been been a part of a lot of teams who got promoted to higher leagues. And I can all, let, let me just say uh, Union, who's now the leader team in, in Belgium. I was there for three years. And when I came there, they were in the second league. And... And when they got promoted to the first league, it was the first time in 58 years. So that was like crazy. When Toulouse won the French Cup, it was the first time in 66 years. For example, in 2022, I came to Antalya Spore in uh, with Noel Sehin, uh, the head coach there. In in end of January 2022, they were number 17 in the in the Turkish league. So in the in the last uh, relegation spot, fourth last there. I came with a visit there. And again, of course, I know it's not only about the throw-ins. I'm not so naive to think that 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 I control everything. But I'd just say if you improve your throw-ins a lot, you can improve your general wrestles. And Antalya Sport Air, the last 15 games where, where they started as number 17, they won 10, drew 5, and went from number 17 to number 6 in the Turkish League. So again, yeah, um, why can you improve so much by improving your throw-ins? It's actually because a lot of people have been calling throwing coaching or throw-ins improving for marginal gains. No, it's not marginal gains. Marginal gains was like you probably know, like Sky did. They did a they took a tiny tiny bit and improved that, and that made better wrestles. That's marginal gains, and they of course tried to find a lot of these tiny tiny things to improve that made them better. Throw-ins is not a tiny thing. It's a gigantic thing, like 40 to 60 throw-ins in a match. We're using approximately, if you're taking the following situations, approximately 20, 20 minutes in a game. So, so throw-ins is a, actually a gigantic thing. It's just only been, it's only been like like over overseen or, or neglected by 
by football in 150 years with with cliches like chuck it in or down the line or just play on your thing you know so so yeah hmm. yeah it's really interesting hearing you talk about that but you said you've been doing this for 20 years now you must have seen clubs starting to realize that the throw-ins are, are important then so presumably you would say football is catching up with the idea that the uh, throw-ins are important yeah of course uh, i've seen some some uh, some development but but only a little bit of course development where i've been coaching but i think that we can still catch a lot up with with knowledge in general in football i think there are still many places uh, a feeling of that the people who are hired in clubs, they have to know it all, they have to do it all. So I think we can still learn a lot about flow of, of knowledge in, in in football in general. You can see one of the many reasons why I had success with Liverpool, with throwing to Liverpool, of course, together with the staff, with the players most importantly, was that I was allowed to do anything I want with the players around throw-ins. Of course, I, I, I look at the, the intensity, the minutes I got, things like that communicated, of course, with the team, but they trusted my knowledge. So so, so, so that knowledge, that it was running free, you know. Um, and I see a lot of coaches who, yeah, like saying, okay, we get this knowledge, now we figure it, everything out. Uh, you know, so so I think I think that that's the reason why I can still I can still see a lot of big big teams who are totally under improving on throw-ins. And of course, you know, you know, in a match there'll always be bad situations. In a match there'll also always be be uh, be be single throw-ins who are like underperforming. And so, and even with Liverpool being perhaps the at least the first two, three years I was there, maybe the best throwing team in the world. We still lost possession in, in like thirty-one point six percent of the time. So, so of course, in every match you can find throw-ins who weren't the best or the opponents just defending well. But for example, um, I can just remember the last, um, the last Champions League game here. Uh, Manchester United against Bayern Munich, and yes, Bayern Munich they had qualified and for the next round, and but they had like a they had like a possession on on forty one percent on throw-ins under pressure, and that's really bad. You know, if you do that with your feet in the middle of the pitch, you'll say, "Wow, have we <laughs> have we set drunken f- drunken fans into the pitch?" So you know, so of course, and of course, throw-ins that's 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 a can be a big challenge. But for example, Bayern Munich there in that game, they were like constantly doing classical mistakes like coming too close to the thrower making the pitch small for themselves then the the pressure was increased and of course if if it's like that you have a harder chance of keeping possession the opponents can take the ball so 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 of course i see from time to time where i see single throw-ins or some teams who are doing doing of course better than they did before for example a team like arsenal has has um has improved um you know, positively compared to earlier. And, but I've also worked with um, uh, Nicolas Rovert. I worked with him in, in Brentford, so so he know me too. So I'm really happy to be able to inspire people there. But yes, yes, some teams have improved, but there are there are so much, much more improvement. And, and maybe again, we come to that later. But one thing is just like general football throwing improvement. Then there is also the influence of of many other sports and how we can change throw-ins even more than than we do today. So so uh, yeah, a lot of um, 
potential f- uh, on of improvement on throwing still. Yeah, let's start talking about the the theory about behind throw-ins because I can tell that you really enjoy talking about the theories behind behind throw-ins. Um, I guess we should start off by saying that throw-ins are set pieces, and set pieces are situations where you are in control of the situation. Um, so you've mentioned a lot this time um, so far that there's, there's a couple of situations you might want to be in. You might want to try and directly generate a goal uh, from a throw-in, um, and you're going to be able to recreate the same situations over and over again in those areas but also another thing you keep talking about is retention of pressure so you have uh, sorry retention of the ball under pressure so you have the ball and you if you can keep the ball then you're going to have possession of the ball which is a good thing Um, so tell us a little bit about just why you think uh, uh, throw-ins are so important off the basis of that first of all I'll say that of course possession on throw-ins under pressure, uh, they're really important. And and it's also the reason why I say under pressure is because, for example, when I analyze a match and it's a no-pressure throw-in where the nearest opponent are like 20 meters away, you throw it to the central defender. I don't count that into the statistic because that doesn't say anything about the, <laughs> the throw-in skills of the team. But throw-in possession, uh, it can be really important. It not it. Throwing statistics is not necessarily, or the single throwing is not necessarily that important to keep possession. But 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 of course, if you if you have sixty percent possession instead of twenty percent possession in a game or generally in a season, you'll you'll highest likely perform better. But sometimes you can also say that okay, we now we take a what I call a low risk high reward throw in. Let's say, for example, from the middle of the pitch, we have a, a great run behind the defense and you can't be offside in the throw in. You throw it there, uh, try to make the right pace. This is a low risk high reward. So it means that if it works, you can have a great situation, a good chance, even a goal. And if it doesn't work, let's say, yes, suddenly great defending or the throw in is too long, then there's a goal kick. Then it's still okay. So I'm also really looking. Look, looking on this like in in a both objective way with the numbers, but also subjective way. So it's it's really really important for me to learn to learn the players different kind of possession. Then so so again we are talking about safe possession. So it could be a return pass with good distance. Then you play your central defender, and then you have control. You can start with the build up. So so that's just like um that's that is also some kind of a yeah, quite low risk. Uh, and but but here then low reward so you don't expect anything at least not for the next 30 seconds or so you know um so you also have to to learn your players um how can you say what is a good decision what is a good risk um so so all these factors are try to to learn the players that of course before i'm learning the players all these things i'm all, always talking with the coaches and so because um one thing is what I think they should do. Another thing is what what the coach think. Let let me just give an example. If we're talking about space creation in general around the opponent's penalty area, some cr- coaches really want a lot of crushes crushes uh, um, into the penalty area, and other coaches don't want that. So <laughs> they rather want to play more passes uh, inside between the defenders and cutbacks and things like that, or shots outside the penalty area. So all these things are, of course, agreed agreed with 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 the um, with the coaches there. But but it, for me, it's really really important to look at them, look at the 
the throw-in possession, and then of course you have to look at it um, sub- subjectively too. Um, and so, so what I do when I do a throw-in analysis is that first of all I'm looking at all the throw-in throw-ins under pressure, and let's say there are let's say in that game there was 48 throw-ins and 34 was under pressure. Let's just say to make it easy, 17 attacking, 17 defending. Then I analyze all those, and then I I make a comment like one to three lines at each throw-in, and that, then afterwards I'm looking at. Of course, I'm I'm writing down the possession in general there. Then I'm also writing some general comments around the match too. Uh, so what is the resume of this match? And then I have highlights, and and because I'm such a throw-in nerd, I I find interesting thing <laughs> almost in every. Every throw in, but a but a coach and the players can't relate to so much. So I'll typically have three to six highlights, um, all in all in a game, and these highlights I either use myself when I have to train the clubs or the coaches where I'm in the clubs where I'm coaching. They're using that knowledge to to either build into the training uh, uh, themselves or to show in talks as an example or or things like that. So, so that that that's the way I'm working with all these things, like like um, possession and 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 strength and weakness. And then it's really important for me to say that if I haven't mentioned that, I'm also analyzing the opponent's throw-ins. And then we are suddenly looking at at, at other things too, like. Of course, we, we are talking about pressure at attacking throw-ins, but that's more like the opponent's pressure on us. Then, obviously, we want to make the pitches, as, uh, the, the space as small as possible. When the opponents have a throw-in, try to lock different strengths down. Uh, and 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 again, maybe we come into that later. But you can, you can, hmm. you can mark in so so many different ways. There's no best ways of marking, but uh, maybe we'll come to that. Hmm. Well, let's talk about the three different types of throwing that you've been talking about all the way through here. So you've got long, fast, and clever. Um, let's start off with long throw-ins first. Why would you say it's important for clubs and teams to be able to use long throw-ins? It's important for clubs and teams to use long throw-ins in uh, different reasons. First of all, if you're a really strong team, uh, set-piece strong, you're already great on corners and free kicks, then uh, you can have many, many extra uh, set-pieces, dangerous set-pieces by adding on long throw-ins. Uh, sometimes you can be lucky to have a world-class thrower there, but most clubs don't. And even if they have, they can also improve. So what I'm doing here is improving the, the player's throwing technique. And most players I work with improve 5 to 15 meters only with technical training. Not They don't have to go into the weight room and add on uh, 5 kilos in the upper body or things like that. Um, and then I'm, I'm also working there with with throw-in strategy there, long throw-in strategy there, tactics there. And 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 again, in this point, I'm, I'm mostly advising either the assistant coach or the set-piece coach because many of my clubs already have set-piece coaches, but they don't know much about throw-ins. That's why they still hire me. So it's more like advice because, because then they'll do the, the daily work with the players when I'm when I'm not there, so that was like one of the reasons. If if you want to score on long throw-ins, but it's also important by other reasons. First of all, the longer throw-in you have, the greater throw-in error you'll have too. 
And it means that you can throw to more teammates around the pitch. And for example, when I came to Liverpool FC, Andy Robertson could only throw 19, 19 meters and 80. So every time Liverpool had to throw in the left side of the pitch, he couldn't throw very far. So it's really easy for the opponents to build on pressure. So And he improved, um, I think it was around 8 meters or so, Andy Robertson um, improved his throwing area with more than 500 square meters, if you're looking at the half circle he can throw in. And and even though he'll never be one of the best with the long throwing, he he he's, he could still throw to many more teammates. And then if you add on, we come to that later, the fast and clever throwing. He's, he, I consider him uh, to be one of the best throwers in the world. So that was like the second reason, just to improve the throwing area. So that was the reason why we didn't use the long throw in Liverpool. We didn't use the long throwing, let's say, in Ajax, but I did a little bit of long throwing coaching technique in the start. And then the third reason why you should make your players throw longer, even though you're not using it as a set-piece weapon, is because it's, it's also a great counter-attack weapon. And can you throw 30, 35 meters instead of 20 meters? Then it's much easier for you to throw behind the defense or things like that. And the ball can also roll. So if you can throw 35, you can for sure at least throw 60 meters before the ball stops. And so so that can also be a really great counter-attack weapon. So, so for sure, all teams should... If you have the knowledge, you should to try to improve your players' uh, long throwing. But that's also the reason why I do it in the clubs. That's also the reason why I've been starting an online course, you know, to 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 give my knowledge out because there is there's a lot of knowledge around long throwing technique. So all in all, long throwings can be a really dangerous weapon. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. In terms of creating chances from long throws, I think there's always been a, a, 
I suppose, a negative sentiment towards them, this idea that only teams who can't create in any other way will ever try and just throw a long ball into the box and, and score from it. But um, my, one of my colleagues has, has written a piece about uh, long throw-ins, which shows that you're, I think, more likely to score from long throw-ins than you are from short throw-ins. Uh, so it's a, become a legitimate way of, of generating chances in the box. Do you think that more teams should be utilising long throw-ins in, as, a, as a way of generating goals? Yeah, for, no, not necessarily, because the worst thing I would like to see in football was that all teams were taking like a lot of long throw-ins. And there's also a lot of people who have been asking me, well, why didn't you why didn't you do a lot of long throw-ins in Liverpool? Because you probably saw Joe Gomez had a world-class long throw-in, also assisted in the Nations League against Croatia, where, where England won. And then I'm saying to people, we could easily score 10 long throwing goals with Liverpool FC per season. And then the people say, why don't you do it? Then I say, when you want to do, when you want to score 10 long throwing goals in a season, you maybe have to take 8, 10, 12 long throw-ins per game. And would you like to see that? And then people start to understand that, that it also affects other things. So, so again, back to your question, you should, first of all, I think you should only do long throw-ins if you have the team for it, let's let's imagine when I coached Ajax, if they did long throw-ins, wow, <laughs> that would that would really be uphill because there was like small players all around the pitch. But then you also have to have, if you ask me, um, uh, world-class long throwers. And, and I see uh, also teams in the Premier League, but also things Super League all around the world where teams are taking long throw-ins, but the quality is not good enough. Um, and... And that's a shame. I think the challenge with long throw-ins is that people are getting really, really fascinated by long throw-ins. Now there's a long throw-in. So, so, so again, back to your question. I don't want necessarily more teams to to do long throw-ins. I think it's really great. I'm I'm really fascinated by the by the battle between playing styles. So, it's great that there are some teams who are doing a lot of long throw-ins. Some teams are doing it once in a while and some teams who never do it. I like that. It would be a really shame uh, if all did it. And then I'll also say uh, a comment to um, to your colleague's uh, article there. Um, and and uh, I, I actually think I was interviewed for that too. So, <laughs> so, so, But I'll say that I think that's also sometimes a challenge with knowledge is that that you are taking conclusions of the knowledge you have currently. And, and of course, you, you, you can only make conclusions on the knowledge you have. That's like quite, quite basic. But the challenge here is that, that if you're just measuring on long throw-ins, let's call them short throw-ins too, the challenge is that if you have a decent thrower, you might be lucky if you're doing a long throw-in to to score because it's often just a flick on, even from the opponents. Of course, sometimes we see direct hitters, um, uh, but often it's on the second, the third, fourth, or even the fifth ball in the penalty area we score. But hey, you don't, you don't, you don't care how you score these long throwing goals as long as the ball goes in. And at least in the Premier League, I think a goal is worth like three million pounds or so. At least that's like I think it's actually old numbers I I read once once upon a time. So you can say, do you have a high quality long thrower? Do you have a decent throwing strategy? Then there's a good chance that you'll score. The chance with short throw-ins is that I see that even though long throw-ins can look ugly, 
short throw-ins for most teams are even worse. And <laughs> and one of the often the opponents are standing in a four-man zonal. And often you're playing minus two there, and of course then you're three if you're adding on the thrower. But I see some of the basic mistakes that a lot of teams are doing. They're just coming too close to the thrower again. Then you're pulling that four-man zone outside the penalty area. Then you're playing three versus four. Yeah, maybe you add on one more of from each team to, to go into, like a midfielder or their midfielder too. But you're still minus one. You're playing in a small, small space. What will happen there? Of course, big risk of losing the ball. And the low quality of the short throw-ins, I also call them clever throw-ins, that's also affecting a big statistic like your colleague is showing. So if you are doing bad short throw-ins with bad space creation, no real strategy, then it's totally right that then you're better off with having a decent thrower, chucking it in, and that's fine with a decent strategy. But it doesn't mean that you have to throw more long throw-ins. It can just mean that maybe the team should be even better at creating space around the, your, the opponent's penalty area. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm not mm-hmm. saying that you shouldn't try to go all in on long throw-ins. I love that some of my teams are doing that. But because you read because you read in a, in a big research that you have better chance of scoring on long throw-ins, it doesn't mean it's the right way to follow. And again, I'll also say again, Another example is I can remember when I think it was the 18-19 season where there was like, again, I can't remember 100% sure, but I think it was like all throw-ins in the Premier League were analyzed and they were looking at throw-ins going forward, throw-ins going inside the pitch and throw-ins going behind, back on the pitch. And then the like conclusion was that, okay, big risk of losing the ball, throwing the ball forward. A little less risk throwing it inside, but it was still dangerous if you lost it there. But throwing it backwards, that was the less risky. So, like the conclusion was, the best thing was like to 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 throw it backwards. But the challenge here was that you didn't take in consideration that the quality of the throw-ins in in all directions. So, so if you're having a throw-in backwards with no or less pressure compared to a team chugging it down the line in a big bunch of people, you know, then you'll know the outcome. It doesn't mean, again, that you th- should throw it backwards. It, it maybe means that you should, just, you, you should develop your throwing strategy and your throwing skills from your player. But of course, I can understand it. Teams, coaches, players have been lacking knowledge around how can we improve it. And then instead of doing something, I think it's a normal thing for human being, then we try to focus on things that we can do something about. So it has, it's been meaning that, that, and I talk with so many coaches around the world, I'm still shocked on how many teams in training are only playing with kick-ins or starting with the goalie. Because, you know, throw-ins, that's like disturbing the, the, the flow of play. And so then we can't really do what we, we want to train, you know. So, of course, it's, it's been mm-hmm. a negative spiral here. So, um, yeah. So, 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 yes, still a lot of things to improve here. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about fast throw-ins then. Um, what is a fast throw-in? Yeah, I also divide it up in, in three things too. So so first of all, the fast throw-in is, is all about fast reaction. Um, when the ball goes out, 
player as both for your from your own team, but also the opponent's team can be light spread, like you know, all around the pitch, depending on what situations you have had. And and no matter if it's your own throwing, let's just say it's our throwing now. So what happens in many teams is that oh, we want the fullback or the wingback to take the throw-in, so we wait for him or her. And sometimes that can take, let's say, four or five, sometimes up to 10 seconds or even more if it's slow. But often there is a player much, much closer. It can also be a midfielder, central defender. It could also be a striker. If you can learn that player or these players in general to get the ball fast, scan on the way, see for good options, um, take good decisions, know what is a safe possession, know what is, for example, a low-risk, high-reward, make them be able to throw precise, make the players around him or her who's taking the throw in be aware of where is the space, where can we run to create the space even better, or run in a free space. Then we already have a good option because then we give the opponents less time to organize. Some people have, like, like, um, like quoted me for it's always good to throw within five seconds and I think it's it's a misquote because I've never said that but what it, because throwing it fast can also be one of the worst things you can do because if you throw it fast into a high pressure zone you know <laughs> you don't want to do that so that's the reason why you want to scan both with, with with the run towards the ball, when you have the ball, but also scanning by the attacking players who have to create the space so that's so so important and and I, I think it was in my third season Liverpool or so we had like a, we had like a statistic. It's not my uh, it's not my, um, my my data, but there was some statistic company who looked at throw-ins in the Premier League. They looked at on one hand the the average throw uh, time per throw-in in a, in a match, and we had like eleven point something per throw-in. Chelsea were quite close to us. And then on the other end, we had like Southampton who took like, I think it was almost 16 seconds per, per throw in. And then in this uh, paragraph there on, on the other on the other angle there, we had how big percentage of all throw-ins were taking super fast within five seconds. And if you put those two data together, it showed that Liverpool FC were much faster all in all than all the other teams in the Premier League, of course, there were some teams who were close in the middle and so, and some teams were really slow and bad on that perspective. So you you, you can actually use the fast throwing as a weapon. So because the less seconds the opponents have to um, have to be organized and there are some valuable spaces uh, somewhere. And again, if you can't throw the ball fast, then you have to have patience. Then you can start to create space. So, so that's like the fast reaction. Then the second thing is, I, I covered that a little bit before regarding the long throw-in, but then we have the counter-attack throw-in. So, so again, you can't be offside in the throw-in. So, so your outfield players are allowed to have totally different running patterns compared to all other situations in football where you can be offside. So yes, you, you of course, you still have to scan and see where's the space and things like that, but you don't have to take the... The opponents of sideline in, in consideration there, so it can be a valuable tool too. And then the the other thing is also defending fast. That's also a really important thing. And because a lot of people think that wow, defending that's like now 
defending throw-ins. Instead, we want to relax. And of course, I can understand why football players want to relax and have a breath because I've been playing football myself, you know, and it's a hard sport, you know. You use your lungs a lot. But but actually, if, if you're marking fast, coordinating fast, marking as a team, then you can afterwards relax because you do... If you don't mark, you're risking that your opponents have a have an easy possession, and then you are, <laughs> then you're still running the next 45 seconds to try to get that ball from them from their feet. So that's really important. What's really important here is that, um, that we do it as a team. I think I have analyzed around. I can't even remember. I think it was like 7,500 defending throw-ins from Liverpool or something like that in the five years. And I only saw three times where they didn't defend as a team, like, how can you say, like wild animals, like like a team communicating. I can remember one time where Sadio Mane, he like talked to the ref because he was unsatisfied with, a, with, with his decision. And then suddenly we had a hole in the defense. So... So again, I know it's high standards, you know, only doing it three times in 7,500 throw-ins, defending throw-ins. But that's what you want to do as a team, defend as a team fast. Because if you don't, there's a hole in the defense. But you can also say that some teams are just like, <laughs> well, sometimes teams are making mistakes, but some team, teams are also just having, how can you say, tactical mistakes like that. Let, let me just take a PSG when they had like that, maybe maybe the best front, front three in the, in, in the history with Mbappé, with Neymar, with Messi. You know, that was like crazy. I analyzed their throw-ins many times because I was coaching Toulouse. And what I saw was with PSG was that the front three, they weren't marking at all with throw-ins. So, so every time... To lose, it was just like really easy to play in between the midfield, and it, it of course it also gave the midfielders from PSG a challenge because then they had to cover much, much, much bigger areas suddenly on 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 the defending throw-ins. One of the reasons why not so many saw it was, of course, because PSG was so much better than the other teams in the in the French league, league on, and so the, even if they conceded from a throw-in because of bad defending or so, you know. They still won 4-2 or so. But I think actually, I think that was actually one of the reasons um, why they didn't win the, the Champions League because, you know, you'll get punished for that when you meet the, the good teams. So 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 that was also fast defending throw-ins. That's so important. Um, and another thing I'll say that, um, of course, when I see a throwing goal, I... I'm happy if I see a good throw in possession with specific space creation. I love that too. But one of the things I also love is like uh, when I see fast defending on throw ins. In my teams, I see quite often a player taking a 20, 30, sometimes 40 meter high intensive run to close down the opponent's options when they have a throw in fast. And I love that and because that's teamwork, that's understanding of the game, the importance of pressure. And so, so again, fast throw-ins, they are important no matter if it's your own reaction, it's counter-attack or defending the opponent's throw-ins. 
Yeah, and that getting into that fast mindset is important in general in football. I'm thinking to the Liverpool uh, goal against Barcelona from the corner where Trent Alexander-Arnold takes it quickly when Barcelona weren't in a in a good defensive position. We saw the same thing happening with uh, Bayern Munich the other week against Bayer Leverkusen where um, uh, Leverkusen were able to get their opening goal because Bayern weren't set for... That was from a throw-in as well, I think. So, um, yeah... Getting, getting teams into that mindset means that they are going to attack and defend quicker in general, not just uh, around around throw-ins as well. But we should move on to clever throw-ins. Um, so tell me what you mean by clever throw-in. Yeah, clever throw-ins. And, and before I go into that, it's really important for me to say that when I came into the, the football world as a professional throwing coach, coaching professional teams, there were no words for throwing coaching. There were no words for the different elements. So I could... How can you say I could decide it myself? So because the influence I had, it's my own words words who's been like, (laughs) that's the philosophy. So the reason why I call it for clever throw-ins was because long throw-ins, that's quite obvious. That's something around improving the length, something around scoring long throw-ins. Fast throw-ins, I wanted that element too. Then what should I call the last one? I think if you call it short throw-ins, you don't get the nuance of, of, of this, the complexity of this. That's the reason why I call it clever throw-ins, because for me it's around, if I should put one word, one, one, how can you say, keyword on that, that's like team space creation. So how you as a team can create space in many different ways. So you have several options depending on the opponent's defending pattern. So you can you can take a good solution. They'll give you either possession, a chance, or a goal scoring opportunity. So that team space creation, of course, clever throw-ins. It's complex, but 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 if I should only put one word, that's the ability to to create space together. Yeah, and obviously each team is thinking about space creation in lots of different ways. There'll be structural differences between teams, but also strategic differences, as you've mentioned already. Teams aren't all trying to generate space for the same reasons. So how much of your approach to to training this kind of thing is based on what the team's broader strategy is? Yeah, it's really based on on their strategy. So so first of all, it can be based on their formation in general. Uh, Some play... 3-5-2, 3-5-2, some play 4-4-2 with a diamond, some play 4-3-3 like Liverpool did. And all formations can have, in, in general, can, can have weaknesses and strengths like, like formations can in other uh, football-related themes. So let me just say, if you're playing with a f- three in the back, no matter what <laughs> the other numbers are, but three in the back, you'll often be... Let's say you have, let's say the left wing back is is taking a throw in the middle of the pitch, and then you'll have three central defenders standing there. Maybe there's only one striker or winger from the other team who's who's like shadow marking the first two central defenders. Then in that area you have plus two, so one man is marking plus two. What I see so many teams with uh, playing three in the back, they're not using that area at all. This is a thing I call mini-switch. A mini-switch is, no matter if it's a three in the back or four in the back, that's the furthest central defender. So so either here with three in the back, it's the middle or the furthest away. We want to use those players if the space is there. And for sure, if it's only one striker who's shadow marking those three, we want to use that. Why do we want to use that? For one reason is because 
if we don't use that, we are even more uh, we are even more minus on the other uh, parts of the pitch. That's one thing. But it's also a really great way to switch the play because we'll often have a motorway on the other side. Not every time, depending on the opponent's defending pattern. But for sure, if the space there, we for sure have a safe possession. So so we can utilize, we can use that mini switch in many many different ways. Uh, either directly if the opponent's um, um, uh, depending defending pattern is flat, we can use a return pass with a good distance. For get it over there from the thrower with the feet. And then we can, of course, also use some kind of shuffling uh, from the midfield and then take it from there in many, many different ways. And then, of course, some people will say, wow, okay, when we use that, they'll start to mark it. Yes, they will sometimes. But when they'll do, what will happen then? Then we have more space in other places. So it's all the time it's around. It's about, about looking at looking at what is the opponent's defending pattern showing us. Of course, also fast when we get it, that's also... But also, if everything is closed down, you know, the opponent's defending pattern is showing us what are good areas. So good areas could be a, a free mini switch, actually a, a two against two in a, in a zone or, or three against three. That's also really good numbers uh, because that you, you can create space to get it there and, 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 and utilize that... Uh, Really great. So there are different positions, the niner box, the big box up the line, things, many different things there, the striker shuffle, things like that we, we, we can use. And again, that's really depending on, on the formation, what we can do, their strengths and weaknesses. Then we have the playing style. Um, and, and of course, this is also, uh, it's also depending really what type of playing style do you have. And, and of course, especially Liverpool with, with that counter-attack Playing style also too, of course, dominance where they had the ball too, but also counter-attack, get the ball from the opponents, then we just go. Also fast throw-ins by themselves, you know, look after fast options. So that can also that could also uh, have a lot of effect. We also have teams where we just want to keep possession uh, because it's really possession strong and we can keep the possession, get the... Um, Get the ball down on the ground out of the pressure zone. That's a really good thing because if we get that, it's we can create great chances too. So I'm also looking at the playing style and some things is just the general playing style and, and then it could also be wishes from the coach, for example. Um, I had a team where I coached in a 4-4-2 diamond where the sixer, I was told that, that's, that the sixer had to stay in place. You couldn't really move. The challenge with that from, from my perspective perspective if i could choose is that the, the sixers can can create space and shuffles with the midfield the eighters tenors and so things but the sixer will also sometimes create space for the mini switches the big switches and also be a part of return passes and so so but if that sixer can't move out of position when we have a throw in you know a lot of the options are closed but if you if i'm told that of course i try to argue should we risk something or try to change things? But 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 that could be a thing like like not only playing style wise but also decision uh, from the coaches. So that's one thing you have to take in consideration. Then you also have to take in consideration what I call individual throwing superpowers. It means that some players are good with a with a first touch. So so if you have let's say we have two midfielders, one is a really soft foot. You know, taking the ball on to himself or herself, or doing return passes. And the other midfielder, let's say another midfielder, is like really physical, strong, 
it's not the passing that's his or hers <laughs> strength, then of course you want to go after the one who's who's having a great touch. If you're throwing the ball and try to create a big box up the line and then maybe try to do a, a side pass with side runs or third man runs, third woman runs too, then you want to throw it up to um, a physical strong player, not necessarily a, a tall one, but you see a guy like Mo Salah, he was really good at protecting big box. We're also creating them a lot with Liverpool, do side passes, things like that. So, so that's also individual throwing superpower. Some players are fast. Uh, and if you're taking it oppositely, you can also say when the opponents have a throw-in, there's also, how um, um, can say, individual throw-in superpowers. Maybe you'll switch the position of some players to mark a big box. You can also say some players are really good at reading pressure. Some 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 players are good at pressure pressure assist and things like that. So you want to take that in in consideration too. So. Uh, so there are so many levels to take in consideration. And then you can say, from my point of view, my biggest challenge is that, not the biggest, but at least a big challenge is that I have a lot of knowledge around throw-ins. I've been working with this for 20 years. I'm coming with two players who are often low quality, can learn a lot. And of course, that's good for me because then we can improve, but also often have, have coaches who maybe don't know so much about throw-ins. And and then if I give all my knowledge immediately, you know, then it, it's it's also um, it's also not good. So I try to dose my knowledge too. So so how can you say learn it in learn it in steps, learn it in patterns, and try to tailor make my my knowledge to the playing style too. Because you can also do it too complex. Um, so yeah. Yeah, one of the things I've heard you talk about in a few of the interviews that I've listened to is uh, you'll, you'll distinguish between patterns and principles. Um, obviously, the, a team will have 40, 50, 60 throw-ins during a game, so you can't micromanage each one of those. So you talk about some throw-ins, you're going to have patterns that you run, um, which which you know you can repeat, but other times players will just be using the principles that you've taught them in order to create space and, and retain possession of the ball. So what would you say the difference between the, those two approaches is, this sort of pattern-based approach, but also this principle-based approach? Yeah, first of all, I'll say that, that, that throw-ins are considered a set-piece, and of course it is a set-piece. If you're looking at long throw-ins, they are much closer to free kicks and corner kicks, because yes, you'll have a you'll have a good um, good high quality of the pass, no matter if it's the long throw in or it's the pass with the f- with the feet on the free kick and corner kick. Then you'll have some kind of strategy, and also with the long throw in, you go after one option. Maybe you can have many different options, but you go after one in that specific throw. But if you're looking at all the other throw ins, um. I'm not considering that a close play. Yes, of course, you can decide because you have the ball in your hands if it's your throw-in. But I consider it more like half-open play because in those 15 to 20 seconds that the ref will allow you to create space, if you've been getting the ball fast, if you've been getting the ball f- slow, you know, the, the ref doesn't have much patience. But but if you're getting the ball fast, you'll have 15 to 20 seconds to create space for sure if you do it actively show the ref that and so you have many many different options there so you can you can actually do you can have two kind of approaches uh either like you say like say like like this more structured approach like we try to set up those things and you can do that that in two ways either you can say okay we try to do that and 
But the challenge by only setting one or two things up in each zone is that it can actually either be really hard to do because of the opponent's defending pattern, or they can just be marking well while you're trying to do it. So that's a shame. So so for me, you can do throw-ins in really high quality in two different ways. Again, like you said before, it can be structured, and it could be a little bit more like after principles. So the first thing I call sequences. And I've been working a lot with basketball in my throwing coaching. I was also visiting Boston Celtics um, uh, basketball uh, facility here in March 2023. And some of the things I learned there, also, of course, saw before that they have 24 seconds to create space. So they have a sequence of four. So they try to do one thing. If that doesn't work, it's been uh, transformed into another sequence and then another sequence if that doesn't work and if the third sequence doesn't work you we're going into the fourth and final because then we don't have more time then we tr we try to do something there and you can actually do the same with throw-ins too so instead of only having one choice in each zone you know that's if you read that also in analysis it's quite quite easy to to uh to defend um but you can you can say that okay we try to do this we try to create a big box down the line and if if that works we can make a side pass break the lines but if that doesn't work maybe we'll try to drag the whole sandwich if it's turned into a sandwich forward then maybe our niner or number 10 can run directly behind and we try to throw the ball behind the sandwich where we would have been throwing in the first uh, first sequence. If the space is there, we throw it. It's also uh, low risk, high reward, typically in that area. But let's say it's marked really well by the opponents. Then highest likely, the tenor would have been dragging a man from the midfield. And then suddenly we have more space diagonal. It means maybe the aider can run into that. So already here, without having ever been, been making that sequence, I made a sequence here, you know, and then you you are you're having three in in one solutions here, and and you can actually do that anywhere on the pitch. You just have to know how can you create each sequence with high quality, but you also have to learn your players to read that. So so that will be really really efficiently when you do that. The other thing you can do, I call that uh, we can call it principles. I also call it uh, unlimited space creation. It's a little bit what I did with Liverpool FC. I was there for a long time. And again, I'll say, if I was full-time in a club, I could do much more with the throw-ins than just coming <laughs> three, four, five times per year. Um, but but with, I learned all the basic around space creation, different tools, the opponent's defending patterns to read, to scan. So it meant that, let me say, uh, if we had a throw-in in the middle of the pitch, we maybe have like, I don't know, uh, 15, 20 basic options. But those Options could be, be done in hundreds of ways or even thousands of ways with different amount of players, different angles, different timing, things like that. So so that was really, really hard to defend. And for example, I, can, I could remember a, a goal we scored against Spurs. I, like, I think it was in my second or third season or so in Liverpool, where Jose Mourinho had... Had had trained with the Spurs players two and a half hours to defend Liverpool's throw-ins, and then we scored the winning goal. I think it was two-one or so. And a lot of people were saying, 
And it was a throw-in from the left side of the pitch, uh, quite close to, to Spurs' penalty area. A lot of people were saying, hey, we that guy, that player went there, that player went there, that player went there. If you do the same, if you use that pattern, it's really great. It's a really great pattern. No, it was not a pattern. It was the players reading the space, creating space, scanning, observing, taking a decision. I often compare it a little bit with Saka back in the days with, with, with Barcelona there. It was not like they said, hey, uh, Messi, you run there, then you down there, then you get the ball from Iniesta. He, then Xavi runs in behind, you play them, and Busquets come behind, play there, and then up to Iniesta again. No, they played like Rondos all the time, a lot of small-sided games, and they got that understanding. So they could do it like in millions of ways. That was one of the reasons why, because they got that like... Tiki-taka intelligence, I just call it that. Um, it was really, really hard to defend. It's, it's the same if you have like unlimited space creation. No, it's really hard to defend because if you know many, many different uh, spaces, how to create them, when to take them, when not to take them, when it's okay to take a risk, when it's not okay to take a risk, it's really hard to defend. So again, of course, you can you you can you can do different elements, uh, different approaches either really bad or bad or good or really good, great. Uh, but there are like two different l- approaches you can take. And I'm not saying you cannot take both approaches at, at the same time. Of course, you can do that, um, especially if you have new players or change the strategy suddenly. Then it can be give meaning to to have a more simple approach and then you build it out again. Um, so so and, and like with Liverpool, I didn't start with the complex. It was not like they were throwing throw in <laughs> at, uh, champions already after a month you know it's it's building step by step so yeah Thomas I could talk to you for another hour but the time the time has moved on really quickly so I'll leave you with just one final question I always like to end my episodes with a question about the future so I'd be interested to hear what you would say um, the 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 future of um, throw-in theory is going to look like what what do you think the next thing is going to be that that clubs start using in order to exploit uh, throw-ins to their advantage yeah first of all I'll I really like like the teams to and, and a lot of are already doing all around the world, also amateur teams and youth teams. But first of all, like just use my ba- basic knowledge, you know, with ba- general space creation, team space creation, avoiding the bad things, um, things like that. When you have done that, uh, for example, in my throwing online throwing course, I also have things around uh, blocks and screens in an open throwing, uh, pick and roll from basketball too. And and I think the next level again, when we have reached a high level in 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 the general throwing strategy and movement space creation, it's to start to use all those uh, screens and and things like that because this gives us a, a lot of uh, entertainment. For example, in basketball or other sports where they're even better at space creation from a from an early age. So so I would love to 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 see that. And generally, I just want to that let's say you're seeing a match with your friend and and your friend is is just getting picking up two beers in in the kitchen two cold beers new beers and then suddenly there's a throw in and then you're just screaming to your friend come on in man there's a throw in you know and maybe people think I'm crazy but I want to see at least once in a while such high quality of throw ins 
that people are just enjoying to see them. Because in other sports, you know, some of those elements are viewed as highly entertaining. We need to move the throw-ins there. We need to make the throw-ins sexy. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for, for coming on. If people want to get more information, and you've obviously got plenty more information to offer, um, you are on Twitter at uh, Thomas Throwins, and you also have a, a website, which is thomasgronemark.com. Uh, I'll send people that way. But thank you so much for your time. I've really, really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you so much. You're absolutely welcome. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.